the old pilot's plain tales, a very British air show. It's that time of the year when migrating APG hosts settle for a while in the Hampshire countryside and gather with some of the APG flock at one special location, the Farnborough International Air Show. The show will be a grand affair, with sleek airliners lined up beside the latest military hardware, but following the Shoreham air disaster of 2015, and because of the airfield's position within a densely populated area, the displays will be a little muted. It wasn't always that way. In its early years, the Farnborough air display was dramatic and far less inhibited, but then came the show of 1952. John Derry was a British test pilot who flew in times when the test pilots were revered by the public for their skill and bravery. They became household names and their photographs graced the newspapers and their exploits were filmed for the newsreels and shown in every cinema around the nation. John had been born in Cairo and was the son of a famous professor of anatomy at the Royal Egyptian University who studied such amazing artefacts as Tutankhamun's mummy. After the outbreak of the Second World War, John Derry enlisted in the Royal Air Force as a wireless operator and air gunner. His initial operations were flown in Wellingtons and Hudsons from Wick in Scotland, but he was soon recognised as officer material and remustered as a pilot in 1943. Following his training in Canada, he joined 182 Squadron flying Hawker Typhoons in close air support of the Allied forces in the Low Country. His second tour of duty was on 181 Squadron before he returned to 182 as its commanding officer. He did an outstanding job and was given both the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Bronze Lion of the Netherlands. When the war ended, John became the CO of the Day Fighter Leader School at the RAF Central Flying School, flying Tempests, before being demobbed. From the RAF, he went to Vickers Supermarine as an experimental and production test pilot, before moving to de Havilland's at Hatfield, where he was to spend the rest of his career. With de Havilland, he was soon going beyond the known limits of flight with the DH-108 tailless fighter, nicknamed the Swallow. The one he flew was the third in that line of experimental aircraft which had been developed after studying the Messerschmitt Me-163 Comet, some of which had been brought to the UK after the war. The first that they built used the fuselage of a vampire and was designed to examine the low speed handling characteristics, whereas the second was a high speed prototype with a Goblin 3 turbojet and at 45 degrees a more highly swept wing. With its longer, more streamlined nose, it looked like the futuristic aircraft that it indeed was. Wind tunnel tests had shown that the aircraft had some potentially dangerous flight characteristics, but despite this, de Havilland's son Geoffrey was using it to creep up on the speed of sound. 
It was late in September 1946 when the young de Havilland began a high-speed dive in it, starting from 10,000 feet. As he passed Mach decimal 9, the centre of pressure movement began to force the aircraft into a pitch oscillation that placed enormous loads on the fuselage and wings. They got worse until the aircraft pitched violently into a shock stall. With a bang, the main spar broke at the roots of the wings, causing them to fold back immediately. Without an ejector seat, Geoffrey de Havilland became a casualty of the fight to become the first to break the speed of sound. The failure of the DH-108 delayed the project by a year, and it was John Derry who took up the torch in the third DH-108 Swallow. The aircraft was more substantial and performed better, establishing a closed-circuit record of 605 miles an hour. A little later, in early 1948, John Derry dived the swallow from 40,000 feet, reaching Mach 1, the first British pilot to break the sound barrier, only a few months after Chuck Yeager achieved the same speed in his Bell X-1 glamorous Glenys. As a fascinating aside, it was back in 1942 that the British Air Ministry asked Miles Aircraft Maker to build a supersonic research aircraft. It was to be powered by an after-burning turbojet that would be designed by Sir Frank Whittle and was predicted to reach over 1,000 miles an hour with a climb rate of 24,000 feet a minute. Named the M-52, it mated a bullet-shaped fuselage to very thin, razor-sharp, unswept wings to reduce the wave drag that occurs in transonic flight. Another key feature incorporated into the M-52 was the use of an all-moving horizontal tailplane, as opposed to the fixed tailplanes and moving elevators used on conventional subsonic aircraft. This clearly demonstrated that the Miles engineers understood the problems that conventional tail designs experienced near the speed of sound following the formation of shock waves that reduce control effectiveness. In 1944, design work was considered 90% complete and Miles was told to proceed with the construction of three prototypes. Later that year, the Air Ministry signed an agreement with the United States to exchange high-speed research and data. Miles' chief aerodynamicist, Dennis Bancroft, stated that the Bell Aircraft Company was given access to the drawings and research on the M-52. However, the U.S. reneged on the agreement and no data was ever forthcoming in return. Shortly after the end of the war, with a new Labour government in power, the project was abruptly cancelled. However, when the existence of the project was revealed to the public, the decision to cancel was widely ridiculed. Finally, it progressed in model form, and eventually the concept was proven successful when a scale model reached Mach 1.38 and proved stable in both transonic and supersonic flight. 
the success of the Miles M52 design would have given the UK a decisive edge in the early days of high-speed flight, but, as it was, the development relied on the de Havilland DH-108 instead. Following the success of his supersonic flight, the Swallow flights continued with other pilots. Sadly, we will never see a DH-108 in the flesh, as... After the loss of Geoffrey de Havilland in the crash of the second aircraft, both the other experimental machines were destroyed, killing their pilots. George Genders lost control during a stall when the aircraft fell into an inverted spin and he abandoned too late for his parachute to open. And Stuart Muller-Roland crashed unexpectedly. It was thought that his oxygen system failed, rendering him unconscious. Even the famous Eric Winkles Brown had a crash in the DH-108, which he described as a killer. By this time, John Derry had moved on to other projects, such as the DH-110, which was to become the Sea Vixen supersonic fighter. The Sea Vixen succeeded the very first generation of jet fighters and was to serve successfully with the Royal Navy into the 1970s, only to be superseded by the fabulous McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantom II FG-1. The Sea Vixen was a twin-engined, twin-crew, twin-boomed aircraft with a high tail. It was an all-weather fighter, and the radar operator, known in Navy parlance as the Observer, sat to the right of the pilot, inside the dark fuselage, with little more than a small porthole to peer out of. The pilot sat to the left, under an offset canopy. It was not considered the safest of aircraft, as 55 of the 145 purchased were lost, and of those, more than half were to fatal accidents. However, the Sea Vixen prototype, the DH-110, was very much John Derry's baby, and he displayed it with skill and exuberance. As a display pilot, John gave his name to a manoeuvre known as the Derry Turn. At only 50 feet, he would fly a hard, flat turn, and as his nose came round a point at the crowd, he would reverse into a turn in the other direction, but instead of rolling in the conventional way upright, he would roll under the long way and through the inverted position. It was four years nearly to the day from when John had first gone supersonic in the dangerous DH-108 Swallow and he was at the Farnborough Air Show to display the new DH-110. It had been painted pure black and looked dramatic and menacing in the air. It was the final day of the show and the sixth time Derry had got airborne in the new fighter. Previously, everything had gone perfectly and he had started his display with a supersonic low-level pass across the airfield before putting it through its paces with a combination of aerobatics and low-high-speed passes which deafened and thrilled the vast crowd. There were two prototypes there, the all-black one and a silver one, Whiskey Golf 236. This was the standby aircraft, and he had displayed in it just once before during the six-day show. 
Having got airborne a while before the start of his display, he climbed Whiskey Golf 236 to high altitude, and then, when his slot started, he descended steeply from high level accelerating to supersonic speed. Looking up to the north, the crowd could see two small white puffs of condensation as the aircraft passed Mach 1, and then, about a minute later, it streaked through the overhead, followed by the famous double supersonic boom of noise, which arrived just after he did. Derry took the aircraft out of sight to the southwest and then passed low over the runway at around 600 knots, Turning hard left, he came around to the north at about 400 feet when, as he crossed the airfield boundary in front of a 120,000-strong crowd and his young wife, small fragments broke away from the aircraft. Now in a climb, the DH-110 abruptly disintegrated into silver confetti. It showered upwards, many leaving smoke trails. The remains of the wings floated down slowly like a leaf. Then there were screams as the two engines shot out of the shower of broken aircraft and the commentator shouted out, My God, look out! A witness standing on the roof of her parents' car saw a massive shining cylinder pass a few feet over her head and then plough into the packed crowd behind on a small hill. There was a shocked silence. Then one or two people screamed, but mostly it was quiet until the injured started crying out. One injured landed harmlessly clear of the spectators, but the other had hit Observation Hill, causing devastation amongst those there. The rest of the airframe landed harmlessly on the other side of the airfield, but the cockpit, with the crew members John Derry and his flight test observer Anthony Richards still inside, fell right in front of the crowd, near the runway, injuring more. Ambulances and first aiders rushed to help, and the crowd parted like the Red Sea to let them through. Their efforts seem antiquated to us now with old ambulances and canvas stretchers, but they did their best. In a moment, 31 lives had been snuffed out. Bodies were covered with newspapers, and a young lad's father knelt down and prayed and wept at the sight. John, Tony, and 29 from within the crowd died that day. The newsreels told of the disaster. Far better not to show the harrowing scenes that followed. The heavy death roll is mute testimony of the dreadful tragedy. But with an attitude to death and destruction that seems foreign to us now, the organisers swept the debris clear of the runway, and with his close friend dead and the wreckage right beside him as he took off, Neville Duke got his Hawker Hunter airborne and did his full display. Almost at once, Derry's friend Neville Duke flew a Hawker Hunter through the sound barrier again. Flying like progress must not stop. John Derry was an explorer in an unknown world, 
whose barriers can only be penetrated by such men as he. Their courage and skill have won us great victories in the skies, and they will go on. One spectator there likened his display to a salute to a fallen friend. A coach, returning to Coventry that evening with the Armstrong Siddeley apprentices on board, had nine empty seats. Another remembered being a seven-year-old child there when it happened. On the train home it dawned on him that he was covered in the blood of those who died or were injured. Queen Elizabeth II, the directors of de Havilland and the government all sent messages of condolence and promised that every possible step would be taken to trace the course of the accident. Subsequent investigations found the failure to be the faulty design of the end sections of the main spa, which resulted in the outer ends of the wings shearing off during a high-rate turn. The subsequent shift in the DH-110's centre of lift caused the aircraft to pitch violently, creating forces of over 12 G, resulting in the cockpit and tail sections breaking away and the engines being torn from the airframe. The disaster prompted the introduction of stringent safety measures to protect spectators at air shows, and displays were kept within a well-defined box to ensure an aircraft flying towards the crowd would still fall well short of the public in case of engine failure. Until the Shoreham accident, no member of the public had been killed at a British air show since John Derry's aircraft came apart underneath him. There were many tributes paid to John Derry after the accident. A fine-looking young man with an inspiring personality whose life was snuffed out in the way of many test pilots in those days, too early in his career. The work of the test pilot was well known to the public through popular culture and media, but in a horrifying instant, the unknown dangers they faced on a daily basis were laid out for all to see. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.